The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan on News Talk. Eamon, thank you very much. You're listening to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you live today from the Palace Bar on Fleet Street in Dublin. If you are just joining us, let me reset the scene for you. The year 1823, the year of our Lord. In Europe, French forces invading Spain to restore Ferdinand VII as absolute monarch. Those forces, the 100,000 sons of St. Louis. In England, William Webb Ellis, he allegedly, and I say allegedly, picked up a football, ran with it, fell on the ground and thereby invented the sport of rugby. We also, in 1823, we got the Monroe Doctrine. We got the first edition of the Lancet. We got a new Pope, Leo XII. Thomas Francis Marr, he was born in Waterford, the young Irelander. And ultimately a US Civil War Brigadier General and one of the first governors of the state of Montana, Edward Jenner. He died, shuffled off his mortal coil in 1823. The man who invented and gifted free of charge to the world the smallpox vaccine. George IV, or George IV, yes, he was technically our king. The Act of Union, it had come and gone, so Robert Jenkinson over in London, he, the second Earl of Liverpool, our Prime Minister, the famous Henry Grattan, one of Dublin's MPs, as was Sir Robert Shaw of Bushy Park House, Bushy Park and Terranure, basically his back garden. Here in Dublin as well, the Royal Hibernian Academy, that was founded, Daniel O'Connell, he established the Catholic Association, and on Fleet Street, the Palace Bar, where we find ourselves, they open opened their doors for the very first time. What an occasion, 200 years trading and an occasion we are absolutely privileged to be a part of uh, today. We have been here since four o'clock, we're gonna be here till seven o'clock. We have an absolutely stellar lineup of guests and chief amongst them, Frank MacDonald, former environment editor with the Irish Times and Donald Fallon, host of the Three Castles Burning podcast. Uh, gentlemen, you're both very welcome. Thanks, and Thanks a million for uh, joining us. 087-1400-106, I should say, uh, is the number if you uh, uh, want to get in touch and share some memories. We've had some lovely memories, actually, people who've met in the palace and people who've worked in the palace uh, coming in, so keep them coming. Uh, Donal, you are sampling this. I, go, I keep describing it as 200-year-old Guinness. It's, it's, it's not 200-year-old Guinness, but it's a 200-year-old recipe. Yeah, that's not the shelf life of pints, No, it's, it's a special brew from the archives of Guinness. Well, And hello to Evelyn, if she's listening, the brilliant archivist in Guinness. Uh, and they produced this to mark the birthday. So this is what a stout would have been like in the 19th century. I drink bottle Guinness. You know, my fiance is from Waterford, where they use the bottle to stuff, and the, the bottle reigns supreme down there. So if you like bottle Guinness, this is really, really nice. It looks vile. It looks vile. What did you say in the ad? I, I, I said, I said it looked like as if an Englishman had pulled it. <laughs> campaign for real ale, camera. <laughs> What's your tipple of choice, Frank? Uh, 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 white wine. Brilliant. I like oh, a white wine with ice. Yeah. Well, okay. listen, if they're listening behind the bar, a white wine, uh, Frank's a tipple of choice. Um, listen, lots of people here are enjoying themselves, and uh, I, I kind of want to get a sense um, of of that changing face of Dublin over 200 years and where it is today as well. But, uh, Donald, before we get into that as well, uh, you were telling me a little bit about the man who, in portrait form, is looking over your shoulder, an absolutely beautiful portrait of Seamus Heaney. You yeah. met him here. Liam O'Neill is here, a great painter who's done these wonderful images of Miles Nagopoulin slash Flan O'Brien, uh, Paddy Kavanagh and Seamus Heaney. And yeah, in my, my younger drinking days, I met Seamus Heaney on this premises. It was a very special feeling. I came up at a time, I suppose, when there were still remnants of an amazing time around. You'd meet people like J.P. Dunleavy, uh, Anthony Cronin. 
Uh, you'd walk into a pub and you might see Seamus Heaney. And one day, I think it was 21, 22, I said, you know what? I'm going to talk to Seamus Heaney in the palace. And we sat in that corner over there and we spoke about uh, a poet we both loved, Michael Hartnett, for about 15, 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And then I left him on his own. And uh, it was just really beautiful to have those few minutes with, with Seamus here. So where else in the world can you walk into a public house and meet the winner of the Nobel Prize? For literature and talk about poetry. Oh, that's like that. lovely. But where else in the world can you go on the radio and have a pint at the same time? Well, that's true as well. That's true as well. Uh, so meet your heroes. Meet Absolutely. Your heroes. And then over the years coming in here, uh, you would see, I mean, there's another generation of writers in this new image. Uh, Emmett Malone. Ah, there. No, I knew he'd bring it up. Yeah, Mick You're Heaney. In, in our line of work, we live in fear of Seamus' son, Mick. Oh, yeah, radio exactly. reviewer. That's not Roy Curtis. Uh, you'd walk in and see sporting stars. I walked in one day and said, that guy's the image of Charlie Redmond. And it was Charlie Redmond. So and, this, uh, this pub is a real amazing place for meeting everything. And this um, uh, kind of uh, uh, portrait of caricatures you're talking about, uh, Jerry Adams is slapped down there in the middle of it, isn't it? <laughs> Jerry with a belly, yeah, that's me. Delighted <laughs> to be in it, the beard, the glasses. Uh, I've always loved the original, does it? A famous image of the palace yeah. uh, clientele. Harry Kernoff is in it. I love Harry Kernoff. Uh, Seamus O'Sullivan, everyone's in it. And this new version, Dublin Culture 2023. Yeah. And so yeah, I'll be on the wall of the palace long after I'm, I'm forgotten. Yeah. And, and the in, book is in the discount. And for many, many more years, here. people will say, Jeez, I never knew Jerry Adams drank in the palace. <laughs> there you go. They'll have to look more closely. Um, uh, I, I'm glad you pointed out, Lee Money, because they're, they're beautiful, beautiful portraits on the wall for people who want to come into the, the, the back of the palace. Uh, where they are, they will see them. Um, Frank, 1823 I mentioned uh, as well. Can you kind of maybe paint a picture of, of, of Dublin in 1823, that era? Kind of the, the act of union I mentioned, come and gone. The story is kind of the flight of maybe kind of wealth and influence to London had happened or was happening. What was the city like? Well, I think that uh, you have to remember that a lot of the work that had been done by the Wide Streets Commission in the 18th century and by the, the great estates uh, in developing Georgian Dublin, that much of that work was actually completed. And the truth is that Dublin would have been one of the most magnificent cities in Europe at the time. And people who came over here from London, you know, uh, were stunned by how beautiful the city was, um, with these great streets and squares and uh, fantastic public buildings like the like the Custom House, the Four Courts, the GPO in O'Connell Street, which had just been finished, I think, in 1819. You know, the new Pro-Cathedral in Marlborough Street. You know, lots of other things going on. And even though the Act of Union had taken away the parliament, the parliamentary function of, of the city, it still had the grandeur that had been given to the place by... Uh, the, all the work that had been done in the late 18th century in particular. And was it an identifiable British city? You know, no. were people coming from Liverpool or London or Birmingham no. recognised it? No, well, not really, because, okay. I mean, Dublin took its template from Paris rather than London. And um, so, you know, London didn't go for... for I mean, when, when the Great Fire of London happened in 1666. Mm. And... Uh, and in the aftermath of that, Sir Christopher Wren put forward a plan. I mean, the city was destroyed. Yeah. Um, Sir Christopher Wren put forward this great plan to rebuild it on neoclassical lines, you know, with St. Paul's Cathedral as its centrepiece. And the, the property people at the time said, no, 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 we have to rebuild it all on the medieval plots. So that's why London, in its core, looks so kind of, 
I don't know, chaotic, really. Uh, whereas Dublin had real grandeur, and London didn't really start acquiring that until the, until the early part of the 19th century. And, uh, Donald, Dubliners at the time, and I'm not talking about kind of Dukes of Leinster or anybody yeah. else, I mean, real Dubliners, how might they have lived? Would we have seen the tenements that we all kind of I mean, came to know so well? To borrow a term from a, a regular of the palace, Miles Nagopoli and Flannery Bryan always spoke about the plain people of Ireland. So how did the plain people of Ireland yes. experience the 19th century? It was Belfast's century. You know, Belfast came onto the world stage as a Linenopolis. You know, Manchester was Cottonopolis. Belfast was Linenopolis. And the Industrial Revolution, I mean, if any part of Ireland experienced it, it was Belfast and Dublin was really falling behind. So what had been a great opulent 18th century city, and the way Frank writes about that, that golden age of Dublin is so beautiful. It was, in the 18th century, the second city of an empire. That's no longer in play. The 19th century, it's a city in paralysis. I describe it that way. And there's not really a whole lot of 19th century architecture in, in Dublin. We're talking about the South City Markets, or the Georgia, the Georgia Street Arcade, as we call it, and, and the pub interiors are pretty much what we have to show of the, the long 19th century uh, for Dublin. So it was a hard time, and the city was changing. You know, what had been a Protestant-majority uh, city in the 18th century the rural poor were moving in, yeah, and with that came, came the tenements, and you know, the, the house of one family in the 18th century could be the subdivided home of 12 families. I mean, I work in number 14 Henrietta Street. At one point, 100 people, 100 people lived behind that front door, which is just extraordinary. And was the, was the centre, was there any scent of revolution or rebellion in the air, kind of the early years, so 1823 we're talking about, but give or take. Parliamentary reform, first of all, and the O'Connell mission, and like Daniel O'Connell wouldn't like to see this in my hands, you know, the, <laughs> no. the, the great political nemesis of O'Connell at one point was, was Guinness, but the Catholic Association was on the march. People were, you know, the, the great belief was home rule, bringing an Irish parliament back to Dublin as they would later call it home rule. They didn't know what to call it yet, but they believed in the same thing. But yeah, a peaceful political reform was on the agenda before, before revolution was. But the political atmosphere in the city was definitely changing in the 19th century. And Frank, how were people getting around? Well, I mean, the, I suppose the great development that took place in the 19th century in, in, uh, was the development of the railways. Mm. And, and they changed the face of Dublin and also the shape of Dublin very much. Um, the first railway line came into, we, we built in, in Dublin from between uh, what is now uh, Pier Station in Western Row uh, to Kingstown in 1834, the first commuter railway line in the world. And as a result of that, um, a, whole, a whole other city developed along that route, particularly in places like Black Rock and Dunleary and Monkstown and so on. Uh, and, and later on, of course, in the other suburbs that would be served by the development of the railways uh, in the 1840s and 50s onwards. Um, and then following that, the tram lines were all put in before the year 1900. So, you know, there was still a lot going on and Dublin expanded very significantly in that, in that time. And I think a lot of it had to do with a movement of people out of the centre of the city particularly the middle class. Like, it was almost like the case that as soon as you became middle class, you got out of the centre because increasingly the centre, particularly the north inner city, uh, was becoming, a, you know, a, a very poor enclave uh, of deprivation and poverty. And so people were anxious to get away from that to, 
you know, the the clear air and 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 bright sunshine of the suburbs. In and so that, that this was the yeah. birth of the birth of the suburbs. You know, it was. Well, yeah. we, we say suburbs. They said townships. Well, they did indeed. And they had yeah. their own local authorities, yeah. their own library yeah. systems, their own fire brigades, everything. But that otherness, the idea of Dublin beyond the canals as its, its own entity and it, yeah. its own thing. And actually, I, I told a lie earlier on where I said there's no great Victorian legacy in Dublin. There is. It's rat mines. It's the red yeah. bricks that are beyond and, the canals. And, of course, the mainline railway stations, yes. all of which we still have, and all of which are still being used, with one exception, uh, Harcourt Street Railway Station, that famously uh, uh, Todd Andrews, who the chairman of CIE, when he closed it down in 1959. He claimed it was only being used by a few Protestant solicitors from Carrick Mines. <laughs> <laughs> well, plenty of solicitors drinking pints in there now in the Odeon. Um, um, well, it's funny you mentioned that, solicitors. Like, for, for me, when I was 21, 22, on the, the pub scene for the first time, yeah. I had a map in my head of different pubs and where different people drank. So McTurkle's, rest in peace, you know, that was the fire brigade pub. Okay. Mulligan's was writers slash guards. Uh, Grogan's was the men who died for Ireland, you know, the, the Republicans. Yeah. And the palace was like a GAA slash journalist slash poets pub in my mind. And okay. that's definitely proven true. And is that why you gravitated here then to talk to Heaney? <laughs> in, in what guise did you see yourself back then? Well, Poet, before mobile journalist phones, or budding GAA star? If, if you wanted to find someone in Dublin in the time before mobile phones, you did the, the, the you know, you went on the, the, the walk and yeah, you'd have a good chance of finding me here at Grogan's. Well, at, it reminds me the, the, the <laughs> Sadly departed Willie Meehan from Kilkenny, uh, who had um, a music store in town and well known to Tom Dunn, actually, who's going to be my guest a little bit later. Uh, famously never bought a mobile. Willie said, ring clears in Irish town, ring home or ring the shop. And I'll be, I'll be in one of the three or on my way to one of the three, somewhere in between, um, uh, which is a nice way to live. Uh, Bridget says, I used to sketch portraits in Dublin. Uh, the Palace Bar was a regular haunt. I did Vincent Bryan's portrait uh, when he had a head of curly hair. <laughs> uh, so says Bridget. Bridget, thank you for that. 087 1400 106. Um, how would you have identified, Frank, the city as kind of Irish in the 19th century? Like, what was uniquely Irish about it? You wouldn't have had in, you know, you say it was kind of modelled on Paris. But in what ways was it not Paris? Well, it was full of Irish people. <laughs> <laughs> Can't get rid of them. <laughs> start. And, uh, and, and gradually over time, you know, the, there were places like the Catholic Commercial Club in O'Connell Street, uh, which was set up as an antidote to the kind of the Protestant dominated business um, sector. Um, but you had uh, all sorts of other things that developed in the, in the 19th century, even earlier, like the Royal Irish Academy, for example. You know, there was a, for everything that English, the, we had an Irish version. And so, you know, everyone forgets that the RDS is, stands for the Royal Dublin Society, which was actually founded in the, in the late 18th century. So there were lots of, you know, it, was, it was a completely different kind of place to an English city. And it wasn't at all like, um, say, the smaller English cities um, like Leeds or Birmingham or Liverpool or Manchester. It was very much its own, its own place, and people would have been conscious of the difference between Dublin and the minor English cities outside London. Uh, we weren't aping them at all, you know. What, what if so? The Linenopolis was up the road in, in Belfast. What was the big industry? The nineteenth well, century I mean, industry. Guinness was one of the biggest employers yeah. in the city, um, and you know. But you had all sorts of other things like Jacob's Biscuit Factory, for example. It used to be 
in Bishop Street, just off Angel Street there. Funny you should mention that, because a unionist MP once stood up in the House of Commons and said, in Dublin, all they produce is biscuits and stout. Yeah. That wasn't actually that, a bad evaluation of the it economy of Dublin. It was pretty much, yeah. And, and then there were lots of small, small industries and small businesses in different parts of the city. And, you know, the Liberties, for example, was famous for a snacker's yards. Um, you know, that's not much of an industry. Uh, but, you know, uh, Guinness was the biggest employer in the city, there's no doubt about it. And, and, and its presence was much more visible then than it is now because you had, you had the uh, kegs of beer being transported down the river uh, on these barges, uh, which had collapsible funnels so that they could travel underneath the bridges. And uh, they would then uh, uh, transfer their cargo to these ships in Dublin Port, right, docked right up to the Custom House yeah. uh, to transport the, uh, uh, the Guinness uh, from here to Liverpool. Uh, 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 a relative of mine was recently dealing with the, a will of another relative who died uh, in the Liberties, Pyro Villas, uh, around there. Yeah. And when they had to dig out the old deeds, it's the Earl of Meath, yeah. you know, I mean, who, 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 who they were renting from initially, you know. So that's all around us, uh, that history. Um, how kind of cosmopolitan was the city? Would, would it have been exclusively Irish and Anglo-Irish, Donald, or might no. you have seen a bit of a mix? The 19th century city is evolving in many ways, but a very important thing about the 19th century, I'm looking at the picture of William Butler Yeats on the wall here. Yeats rarely entered a public house and took a dim view of public houses, but the Gaelic revival happens at the end of the 19th century. That's very transformative for Dublin. Now you have theatres putting on work by you know, Irish playwrights and Irish actors and, and Irish teams. But while Yeats was very regularly, very irregularly on the premises of a public house like this, other figures of the Gaelic revival would have been passing through places like this. That was a big cultural shift for Dublin uh, in the 19th century. Very much so, yeah. Very much so. And that, particularly in the latter part of it. And, and that, in, it, in turn, fed into the, you know, not just the revival of Irish culture, but also of, of separatism and the idea of becoming a nation once again, as it yeah. were, and, and ultimately led to the 1916 Rising, you know, as Yeats uh, famously, what, was, what were Yeats' words about that? A terrible the beauty. Terrible beauty. My favourite literary line that I've ever discovered, and I think it's about this pub, uh, Louis McNeese, the Belfast poet, who falls in love with Dublin. He writes the greatest poem about Dublin, and he conveniently calls it Dublin. He describes the city so beautifully. But he talks about being in Dublin on the day the Second World War broke out. Yeah. I think he's, in the, he's either in the palace or he's in McDade's, but for the sake of today, he's in we'll the palace. He's in the palace, and absolutely. He says, uh, they didn't talk about the war. They didn't talk about the politics of Europe. They were debating the correct version of Dublin Street Songs. <laughs> 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 Whatever was happening out there on the continent meant very little. That these literary pubs were their own little enclave with their own little rules and their, their own little obsessions. That sounds like a great debate for the hard shoulder <laughs> tomorrow. Uh, it's Dublin Street Science. It's something we might still be discussing. We still discuss. Um, uh, Frank, um, you know, we, we, we talked a little bit earlier, we heard from Eamon Casey, the historian as well, about a kind of the, the, the more recent kind of cultural revival that would have been born in rooms like this from the 1940s onwards, you know, when you had that kind of milieu that uh, Donald mentions as well of kind of uh, poets and poets and writers and, uh, and everybody else. Um, if we fast forward kind of to, to much more recent times, and I know this is kind of a big question to, to start wrapping things up on, but I mean, what works best about Dublin today for you? Well, I, I, I think the way I put it is this, that 20 years ago I would have been very happy 
to bring friends or other visitors from abroad on walking tours around central Dublin. Mm. And I no longer am. I mean, in fact, I'd be ashamed of it, really. You know, and I just walk through College Green, for example. I mean, this is the greatest single civic space in the city. And it's just a mess. You know, it's cluttered with signage and markings and uh, the Lewis poles and the utility boxes and everything else. And, and you know, it's like, like there's something really seriously dysfunctional about this place now. Are you, are you encouraged, though, at all by the plans to pedestrianise large parts? Well, I think that, I, you know, that, I'll believe it when I see it because, you know, like as, as usual in Dublin, we, we have loads and loads of plans, but many of the plans are never realised. I mean, there was a plan... Well, we have to debate what, what the street signs will look like first. Just yeah, well, the I mean, this is just, it, it, I've said it before on this programme that, you know, James Joyce described it uh, more than 100 years ago as the centre of paralysis. And, and I'm afraid that we, we, it's got to that point now where, where very, little is, very little positive is actually happening. There's very few things that you can really point to that shows uh, a, a, a progressive way forward. And, you know, like I find it astonishing that, you know, the place is now littered with hotels and, you know, like we've built dozens and dozens of new hotels for tourists over the years yeah. and, and dozens and dozens of new office blocks as well and hardly any housing right in the middle of a housing crisis. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, you, you could have brought uh, visitors around Temple Bar and showed them these wonderful new apartment buildings and, and, and uh, other facilities that were being built in the area. And, and you could show that off with pride. But now, you know, there's a kind of a coarseness about Dublin that I find really repellent. What motivates tourism? Why do we travel where we go? Because we want authenticity. We want to feel a genuine sense of the city Absolutely. that we're in. And ultimately, if, you, if, if they care so much about making Dublin a city for tourists, they will have to come back to making it a city for locals. Yes. Because tourists will not want to visit a city in which people like me and Frank ask yeah. questions like, where's everything gone? Yeah. So we, we have to get real about making Dublin a, a better city to live in for, for those who've made that decision. Well, we will continue that conversation here in the next few minutes uh, on the show. A huge, huge thank you to Frank McDonald, former environment editor with the Irish Times. Uh, Donald, you might stick around because you're only halfway yeah. down uh, that pint of Guinness. Uh, I have to uh, say, Frank, Frank and and, and his great book, The Destruction of Dublin, and all he's done since has been a phenomenal influence uh, over me and my work, and it was a, a great pleasure to, to share this with him today. Well, that's a, a very nice thing to say. Thanks and, very much, John. Uh, and he's a brilliant, brilliant advocate. And I'm a great, uh, I'm a great fan of yours, too. <laughs> all right, all right, that's all right. All right, take it off air. And Frank, Frank hasn't even it. had a pint. Ah, yeah. <laughs> not yet, not yet. The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan. Weekdays from four on News Talk. Eamon, thank you very much. You're listening to The Hard Shoulder. Kieran Cuddy with you until 7 o'clock this evening. And if you're wondering what that buzz in the background is, uh, that is because we are broadcasting not from News Talk Studios. We have escaped. We're just down the road, though. We're on Fleet Street in Dublin City Centre, and we are in the Palace Bar, down the back of the Palace Bar. Lots of you, lots of you will know exactly where I'm talking about, will know it well. It is such a popular haunt, and we are here because it has been a popular haunt for 200 years, two centuries, 1823. I think we should first... sell Marconi House and do the whole thing from here in future. Uh, uh, every day, every day. <laughs> all week long, off yeah. the wall, everything, off yeah. the record. You can do it all from here. Well, I think you've, you're onto this, your second pint in front of me now, so, I mean, you, you'd want to be a regular, though. 
Donald, I think, would you, every afternoon? <laughs> Donald is in! Um, Donald Fallon is still with you, the host of the Three Castles Burning podcast, and Holly Carpenter, the influencer, is with me as well. Because I guess we were talking a bit about, uh, with, with Frank McDonald as well, Donald, about um, Dublin in the rare old times, as it were, kind of the last 200 years and how it has changed. What we want to talk a bit about now is how well the city works today, what does work and what doesn't. And I, I don't want to finish on a negative, so we I, might yeah. start with what doesn't. How I, does that sound? I am not as defeatist as Frank. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't want to no, point it out, I, but I did ask him what, what he liked about the city, and he told me <laughs> he wouldn't bring anybody in here because it's a kid. Well, I would say at the very end, I mean, I'm the curator, one of the curators of the Dublin Festival of History. It's on at the moment and for the next two weeks. We have 200 events on for free across the entire city and libraries and civic buildings. I think there's a great sense of civic pride in Dublin. Uh, I think we need to fix a couple of things. One thing we really, I think, would be a great fix would be the idea of a directly elected mayor, more power in the city council. The fact that the mayor changes every year and was only elected by other councillors. I don't think in New York or London or Paris or Berlin they would settle for something like that. You know, I think they would want a local authority that can really get into the issues of the city. But uh, yeah, there's a lot to fix. And I think having more direct say in how our city works is very, very important. I mean, since 1924, Dublin has been ruled essentially by an unelected city management. How do we change that? How do we make people who live here feel like they've more say in the day-to-day life of a city? Uh, Holly, what, like, what works for you in terms of enjoyment of the city? You know, when you're talking to other people, maybe from, from, from other parts of Europe, I mean, what's the selling point for Dublin? Um, well, I think, you know, Dublin has so much character, so much history. The people are so welcoming and hilarious. I think it has had a lot of bad press lately. And if we were to kind of go on about the negative side of things, you know, there is a lot to say. I mean, you know, we've all seen it in the news. I, I think I was thinking if I didn't live in Dublin and I'd never been there and I kept hearing everything on the radio, would I be terrified to go there or would I want to go there on a night out, you know? But I have much pride being from Dublin. I've lived here all my life. And I remember I tried to live in London and I lasted three months because it just is so harsh compared to here. You don't have that same, you know, the crack, literally, and just everyone knowing each other by name and being really welcoming. But um, I think it's kind of like, you know, if you're in a fractured relationship almost with your partner or they're wrecking your head and you start saying, oh, they're such a nightmare. This is what they're, you know, this is what annoys me about them. This is what they do that annoys me. You're just going to keep continuously get more and more infuriated by them and actually be irritated by the sound of them breathing, literally. But I think that that's kind of like what it's like when you're saying Dublin's a kit, this is wrong, this is wrong. I think you need to take yourself on a date in Dublin and go to things like those free events. I know there's the cost of living, but there's so much on that's actually affordable and things that are free as well, like jumping in the sea or, you know, going to the beach. There's so much to choose from. And, you know, I've been living on, I'm a North Sider. I grew up in Rohini. I live in Stony Batter now. And I think the North Side as well gets a bit of a bad rap, but I think it has so much to offer. Uh, Donald, um, you know, it, Walsh's and Stony Batter is, is the new Cristal, you know? Yeah, it's oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Everyone's around there these days. But look, I mean, in this city, the National Gallery is free, the National Museums are free, uh, Emma is free. The fact so many of our cultural institutions are free to visit, I think is one of the great things about Dublin. And we do have a tendency to talk it down. And there are problems in Dublin, but mm-hmm. that tourist, that recent case of that American tourist was yeah. in the streets, 
there's a tourist attack in Times Square probably every six hours, you know, and you, you don't hear about it. It happens in London. The fact that that was a news story and people were so shocked and appalled by it, that only highlighted how unusual it is and how rare an occurrence it is. So thankfully things like that happening in Dublin are rare. And while there are antisocial problems in the city, in general, people do feel safe. I feel safe coming into the, the centre of the city. And uh, I think Dublin... These issues around antisocial behaviour, they, they don't make you frightened to be yeah. in the heart of the city in the way you do maybe feel in, in other big cities. So should we take more pride in the city then? Heidi? I think so. I think it's been through a lot. And like you said, you know, I've been robbed. I've been robbed in Barcelona. I've been robbed in Amsterdam. Was it on La Rambla? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, and I'm probably a very easy target. So and yet, but everyone knows that. It's, it's, yeah, kind exactly. of, it's, it's the cliche of La Rambla. If you make it to the end of La Rambla without getting pickpocketed, yeah. Yeah. you should get a gold medal. I know, and you have that awareness when you're in a place like that. Clearly I didn't, but I think we need to have that awareness. You know, we are in a city when we're in Dublin, and there's an element of having some street smart, not to victim blame at all, because obviously things happen. But, you know, you can't walk around with your bag open or your phone out, and all the things basically I do, making myself a target every day. But, um, yeah, like, I just think if we kind of big it up, I think Dublin needs a bit of a boost. We need to focus on the good, and I totally agree with what you're saying about having a mayor, you know. Yeah, and I, I, I walk most days by Bridgefoot Street Park, new park in Dublin 8. We won't get into the Dublin 8 versus Dublin 7 thing. You know, it's been a, a tug of war between yeah. us for a long time. But uh, I see these new parks and the, the parks department are doing great work in the centre yeah. of the city. Like, a city shouldn't just be a place people go to spend money. There should be amenities. How many playgrounds are in the middle of Dublin? Very few. We need to create a city centre. You know, that, that's a problem of all our city and town centres. They, 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 they were kind of abandoned by those types of things. As yeah. you know, we were talking about the flight to the suburbs. It's probably a, a reflection of that. There's an element of, of kind of uh, of natural progression, and you, you've got to make an effort to to put in place those amenities. I wonder, though, to a degree, would the clamour for them be greater? Of course it would be, if there was just more people living there. So you, you mentioned that you're living in Stony Batter. Stony Batter and Smithfield is a great example of uh, of a huge residential area that's very close to the city centre. I mean, there's a couple of others, but I mean, there's large parts of the city that are just kind of a wasteland for people. There's no one living there, Holly. No, I agree. And yeah, it's hard to see that as well. And I, one of the things I love about living in Stony Badder is that, you know, there's people living there that have just moved, there's young families and everything. But then you also have the lads going by the house on the back of a horse and, you know, the horse and carriage is going around. So, like, that's the charm that I love, that there's still little glimmers of old Dublin coming through. Um, and I just think, like I said, we need to be more positive about it. But, um, yeah, like, I love being from Dublin, to be honest. It's, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the country. And, um, Donal, I mean, the, the, the value of the squinting windows thing, you know, it's often meant <laughs> in, 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 in a negative way. But, I mean, what it does is... It I puts, the squinting windows. I love that term. It, pre- it puts pressure on you, <laughs> doesn't it, to kind of keep the grass cut and have the flowers watered out the front and all of this type of thing. And I'm actually getting to a serious point, which is that a completely transient population, yeah. you know, doesn't have that sense of civic pride. We've all lived in places where we knew we were only going to be there for a while. Totally. And, and you don't have the same sense of pride. So my, my family were generations from the Liberties, Corn Market, the Liberties, and they were shipped out to Ballyfermot, or as they called it, Ballyfire out. Uh, <laughs> they felt like they were going to the moon, you know. But for me, being back in Dublin 8, I'm in Black Pits near uh, Patrick's Cathedral. I love living in that area. But I'll never be able to buy there because everything that's been built on my street in the last 10 years was built to rent. Yes. And with student accommodation. So, I mean, what we need in, in a city like Berlin, people live over shops. I don't think it's extraordinary to walk down Grafton Street. No one lives over those retail units. Grafton Street is dead when the shops close. We need to get people 
back in the heart of the city. The city needs people living in it. And it's, it's, maybe it was a reflection of how poor the inner city was in the early 20th century, that the suburban ideal really connected with people. But now I think to get people back in between the canals, Dublin needs that. It needs, it needs life in the heart of the city. Uh, Holly, we're, I guess we're in a pub, so it, it would be remiss of us not to talk a little bit about nightlife uh, as well. I mean, how do you rate the nightlife in Dublin and how does it compare? Well, I do love a good night out in Dublin, but one thing I'm always giving out about is the lack of taxis. It really stresses me out that you're kind of going, I really want to stay out late. But you're in Stony Park. You I know, but I'm in, I'm in heels. I'm in heels. So you guys put on a pair of heels and walk down. Put a pair of flats in the bag. No, I'm wearing a small handbag. I don't have space. Um, I know, I have actually, a few weeks ago after one of the rugby matches that we're on, I can't remember which one, we had to get a rickshaw all the way back to the house. We, gave, we were begging them to take us and we're literally like draped off the back of a rickshaw. They're definitely not safe, but I'd rather take that risk than walk down the Liffey in my heels alone. <laughs> um, because it is, I mean, that is kind of male privilege to say I can walk home. Because I probably, something would happen to me that might not happen to you, let's just say. Yeah, yeah but, um, well, that's fair. Um, but yeah, I was just saying, oh yeah, taxi drivers, it drives me mad. But then again, there is the anti-social element of Dublin too. And so many taxi drivers have told me they just won't work nights because they don't feel safe. Well, you know, Manchester and other cities in England have nighttime mayors. Yes. I'd love to see us have something like that. If we do, I will nominate Sunil Sharp. And I think that battle that he's fought, give us the night, yeah. for those later opening hours, I think that's a good idea. You know, it works in other cities. You don't throw everyone out onto the streets at 3 a.m. And that's where there's violence. And that's where you get your, your chip shop warriors. Yeah, that's you know? a huge problem. To, to give us the night, to open these places slowly, over time, I think that would be good for Dublin. Uh, Martin has texted in to say, one of the cool places or cool things about Dublin is you can climb a mountain and swim in the sea on yeah. the same day, which I absolutely love. Which actually brings us back to the point about pride, because I lived in Vancouver for a year, and the amount of people from Ireland, including from Dublin, who would look across at the North Shore and say, isn't it amazing to live in a city that's right beside the mountains? Yeah. And I would think, you <laughs> just came from a city that's I've right had such a weird mountains. day. Earlier on today, I was at the centenary of a school. Uh, now I'm at the bicentenary of a pub. But I was at the centenary of a school with Damien Dempsey. So you, were, you weren't drinking pints of that, were you? No, nor was Damien. And uh, I was asking Damien, what do you love about Dublin? And he said, jumping in the sea. You know, yeah. Damien goes to the 40 foot, he goes for the swim. And that's a great point. The fact that the world is just beyond the city centre here, and you can walk out head, and you can jump in the 40 foot. That's very special about this town. Yeah. Holly, your favourite thing about it? Well, that's literally what I think too, especially because you can do all of that on the north side as well. <laughs> we have Hoth, we have the airport, we yeah. have Phoenix Park. Um, like if you're standing in the middle of Phoenix Park looking at the deer as the sun is rising, you do not feel like you're in a city. Like it's incredible the things you can do if you just get up and get out there. And I also think that although we're in a pub now, I think our drinking culture has changed. I think that um, people are more open for going out, having a few zero zeros, going to bed at a reasonable hour and then meeting their friends for a sunrise swim and a coffee and like having real chats. I think I think the big thing is, you know, people are talking more about mental health. And if someone says, you know what, I need a bit of a break from the booze, and um, they can still go out and be social and have a zero zero Guinness or whatever and actually follow through with the plans the next day rather than being in a hoop and bed. If you wanted to walk into a gallery in, in New York City and see world class art, you'd pay twenty, thirty dollars to do it. Mm -hmm. You could walk into the National Gallery and look at a Jack B. Yates for free. 
and I think that's very special that you know children in Dublin can grow up with the sense that they can be an artist they can yeah. be a painter yeah. they can be a writer because it's all accessible well uh, listen I, I'm delighted we focus mostly on the positive actually it was a really nice conversation to have about Dublin to follow up the, the, the history we talked about as well Donald so listen thanks a million uh, for sticking with us Donald Fallon the host of the Three Castles Burning podcast and Holly thank you so much as well uh, Holly Carpenter uh, influencer. do you want to plug your you have a thing coming up the dogs when is oh, yeah. that actually do that's this Sunday so um, if anyone would like to come along to the memory walk in Malahide Castle this sorry it's on Saturday oh my god you caught me off guard there but um, yeah you can register on dogstrust.ie and it's to honour um, dogs in general past and present so if you've had a dog that passed away it's going to be all lit up and there's still time to register yeah great stuff Listen, Holly. 17 year old dog what do you Jesus it's an incredible run isn't it yeah, it is, that <laughs> is some run the vet said it's been a long time since there was paperwork in our family uh, the mutts go on forever Listen, <laughs> 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 Donald and Holly thank you so so much The Hard Shoulder with Kieran Cuddy with Nissan weekdays from 4 on News Talk